0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 368, and I had a conversation with Jeff Russell. Jeff has over 40 years of experience in the sport of fencing as a competitor, coach, and club owner. After his wife's death, he hit rock bottom, but he's picked himself up and he's been sober five and a half years now. He's an avid adventurer on foot and bike trails alike, and he's currently working towards seeing his Amy M. Fortune Foundation come to life. Its mission focused on, quote, enabling participation, enriching lives, and elevating communities. He's a very dear friend of mine. I was really happy that he said yes to coming on the show and I think I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors follow susan ruthism and hey human podcast on social media you can find my albums on spotify apple music amazon music or wherever you get your music look for my album all i ever wanted was everything and how to say goodbye. Those are probably my two favorites. Also, check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner, Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube called Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. And thank you for spreading the word and sharing this with everyone you know. I really appreciate it. Be well. Stay safe. Take care of each other. All right, here we go. Jeff Russell, welcome to Hey Human.
1: Susan, thank you for having me.
0: It's good to see you.
1: It's good to see you too.
0: Welcome to my humble abode.
1: I love it. I love it.
0: <laughs> we are here to talk about you. How do you feel about that?
1: I, I, feel, I feel fine. <laughs> if I give myself too much time to think about it, I might have come up with an excuse not to show up. But
0: I appreciate you being yeah, here.
1: I'm just going to be in the moment.
0: That's a good place to be. Where are you from?
1: Venice, California.
0: You're a unicorn.
1: Yes, born and raised. And actually not Venice Beach proper, but Venice zip code.
0: What was growing up like?
1: Traditional square block neighborhood. Couple of friends in the neighborhood, run around, try not to get in trouble. Different than it is now. Yeah. Just as far as the access that we had
0: well, you the grew neighborhood. Up, you grew up in a time when the door would open in the morning and you were supposed to come home later that night at some point for dinner. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just the- Generation, oh,
0: we have children? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the 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 uh, rule was to uh, come back before nightfall. Yeah. So, especially during the summer, we would just be out playing around at other people's houses, hanging out, going to the park. There was a park close to, to where I grew up and just having the best time. And, oh, it's getting getting dark. we got to go home.
0: I saw a funny TikTok the other day, and it said, I don't understand, why did you... Why did Generation X have to drink from hoses? Why not just go inside? And the response was hilarious. It's, well, we weren't allowed inside. <laughs> the door opened in the morning and they didn't want to see your face in that house until nightfall, if, if not later.
1: And that's great because uh, yeah. I, I, drinking out of a hose is just normal. Yeah. It was just normal for us growing up. You want some water, you find a, find a hose. There's hoses all over the place.
0: That's right. Isn't that funny? Yeah. God, it, it's it hurts my brain to think that we grew up in a time now that a lot of people think of as the olden days.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, completely. It's
0: annoying, isn't it?
1: Well, I, I, the <laughs> uh, the the thing that gets me is watching movies that are dated, and they're dated to the eighties.
0: Eighties and nineties, yeah. both, yeah.
1: And uh, I I don't think about it that way until I see it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was, so
0: and just weird. everything,
1: everything about it too—the cars, the the dress. And you know, living it and then having it as a reference point, it's like, wow, okay.
0: Yeah, so bizarre. Uh, family was close.
1: Yes, yes, and uh, my my uh, grandparents on my mother's side were close, and her sister was close. So there was an extended family that was always getting together for all the holidays, spending nights at cousins' houses, and back and forth. So there was a lot of a lot of family time.
0: And were you close with your sibling, with your sister?
1: Yes, we actually did a a lot of traveling uh, together when we were younger. My dad's job would take him around the country, and instead of flying to those consulting assignments, we packed up a trailer and were able to drive all across the country for basically three months every summer for probably about nine to 10 years, and it was phenomenal. At the time, it was just something we did. As I look back now, what a phenomenal experience.
0: Mm And your dad is in education?
1: He's in education, yes. He's a teacher and and also an educational consultant. And so he spent a lot of time traveling around the country, in some cases the world, offering education consulting to different school districts and programs.
0: He's a famous school guy, right?
1: He uh, One of his colleagues, uh, Dr. Madeline Hunter, is a, a, a psychologist, psychologist, And uh, in the realm of education and just spent years and years and years traveling the country and uh, the world offering programs. Together? Both of them? Uh, Mostly her and then they would uh, do programs uh, together in the United States and sometimes out of the United States as well. And so there were several years where they were traveling around doing programs together.
0: Did that create any pressure for you growing up to do better in school or that you had to somehow uh, not be psychoanalyzed by your dad's friends, things like that. Did that occur to you?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. if I, I would have to probably really sit down and think about it. I, I tend to not think so as my first response because we started traveling and being exposed to his colleagues and um, the ideas that they would share and talk about from an early age. So it just became normal. It became natural for me to have conversations with People that he was working with all the time different educators and and he never had rules but he was always suggestions as far as uh thinking about more than just a one-word response so when somebody because we spent a lot of time with adults there were some kids around at some of the events but since we were traveling uh, together we were always at the events so he was suggesting that if anyone asks you a question you know try to come up with something more than a one word response. So that was always fun.
0: Engagement.
1: Yeah, exactly. That was always fun. God forbid. Yes.
0: Sorry about the distraction. My next door neighbor is the facility and they can get pretty loud. So apologies to anyone listening and apologies to you (laughs) if it's a bit distracting. Uh, Hang in there is all I'm saying. Thank you. What made you decide to go into fencing?
1: Traditional sports. I was always... Involved in traditional sports and I and I could play them uh, for sure and I was always active and But there was something about them that just didn't call me a hundred percent and somehow a uh, advertisement uh, and this is before internet But I got a hold of something. I don't know if I saw a book and it was about fencing A
0: flyer next to the water hose.
1: A flyer next <laughs> to the water hose. Yeah, there was someone that was trying to drum up some business and I um, was able to call the organization, or I possibly even sent a letter uh, and uh, to get some more information about fencing in my area. And I got this huge dot matrix, people can look that up, dot matrix printed report of all the different clubs in California. There happened to be one that was uh, relocating just probably like 20 minutes from my house in Culver City. So it was convenient, so I went and gave it a try and it just, initially it stuck and then I wanted to take a break for a little bit, and then I had signed up for a summer camp. I didn't want to go to the summer camp, but my mother said we signed up for it, you signed up for it, let's see it through, and if you want to stop after that, you can. And then that was just great.
0: What was it about fencing you liked?
1: The connection, the mind-body, the thinking really quickly, the immediacy of it. People refer to it a lot as physical chess, and uh, it's demanding physically as well, especially when you're training regularly, and depending on the level that you that you want to uh, fence at and what, what what the goals are, but it was just the physical and mental aspect of it all at the same time.
0: And the sweat box of a suit that you're in during the summer. <laughs>
1: and that's something that you, you, you definitely get used to.
0: And you had aspirations to go into the Olympics.
1: I did. All my teammates and I, that we, we all started uh, at the same time and we formed kind of a a group of four that was really supportive of each other and we just naturally pushed each other, all in a positive way. We didn't realize it at the time, but when we look back, it was completely positive and supportive of, of each other. And uh, we all got recruited to college. We all went to college. We had particular plans as far as when we were gonna be on what Olympic teams. And one of our buddies ended up making a couple Olympic teams and, um, and then we all kind of went off on our own as far as training and my focus changed when I got to college which I obviously there's a lot of stuff that's happening in college and I think I closed myself off to to certain certain possibilities but when what do you mean well just uh being able to experience the college experience and the, the learning aspect of it and then the uh what I went there for as far as being recruited and the training that goes along with that and just having a healthy balance and I think a lot of my choices back at the time were kind of an all or nothing. So if if I was being confronted with maybe my training or what was next for me, it was easier to put my sights on something else and focus on that and then step away from, from the training.
0: Do you mean like, as as you got anxious over an expectation, you toggled to something else? Yes, okay. yes. Had you always been like that, even as a kid?
1: Uh Yes. Yeah, it started uh, probably, there was a couple of Instances where I, I felt like I was being challenged in front of a group, and uh, instead of possibly asking for help or say, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm not sure what to do next," uh, I just really internalized it and then shut down. And there was some behavior from uh, teachers at that time that uh, allowed me to reinforce that on myself. Meaning,
0: so. bad teachers.
1: Uh, teachers that just had a certain way certain way of doing things, mm-hmm. and uh, there was um, no issues with prating somebody in front of the class and talking about grades or expectations that the th- teacher thought about the uh, the individual, so that was kind of interesting, and I, I, I just uh, turned away from that really quickly. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to subject myself to that.
0: Humiliation tactic. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. How were you feeling about... Drifting away from the sport that you were sent to school to do, that, that must have been a happy expectation.
1: Yes, and there was a lot of lot of regret. There's a lot of regret, and I, I tried to put a happy spin on it, but I I could only do that so much, and so I pulled back even more.
0: Which was the regret part, the walking away? or The, the- walking away.
1: Mm. Yeah, one of my teammates very, very gently just let me know he, after people were talking to try to get me to stay, because I was competing regularly for two years, and then i Walked away from the team, and one of my uh, one of my coaches was not happy about it, and but was still trying to be positive. But he kept saying because I quit whenever we'd interact, you know. And the quit thing came up, and I was really resistant to that, and ah, I didn't quit. I had to do other things, but in uh, all reality, I did. I I couldn't. Uh, I was just. It was just too confronting. The expectation, and then where I felt. I was as far as producing and instead of just sitting down and having a conversation around it and using the network of community that was available to me, I, I just walked away. And it seemed like it was easier, but it it, it built up a lot of resentment and, and regret all at the same time for years.
0: Did you grow up in a family that did not talk about their feelings or did not know? Because... Sometimes as educators, I'm going to use my parents as examples, they're both academia people, so they are more in their head than in their bodies when it comes to a fostering, as I suppose a good word, a emotional response from kids. <laughs> did you experience that in your house?
1: Uh, yes, I did, and the conversation would start and that it would, it wouldn't go anywhere beyond that, so it was kind of like an invitation to uh, have a conversation, but then it required either my parents or myself stepping through that that door, taking accepting the invitation either way, and saying, "Hey, I, I want to talk about this more." Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's times when it did happen, especially when I was was getting older. Uh, and there's times when I realized that it it didn't seem like it was an option. Did you lose your scholarship at college? At that time, there was very, very few scholarships. Uh, I know at, at my school they had uh, one and a half scholarships at the time. Now it's completely different. So they would take that and spread it around to people that that really needed it at the uh, at the time. So there wasn't a, a scholarship attached to my participation. Okay. But then there was a lot of a lot of disappointment, a lot of upset, a lot of uh, uncertainty and concern as well. Some people were concerned with me being gung-ho and participating, and, and also the level that I was fencing on the, on the varsity team. And then that just all went away. And it went away, when I think about it, it went away really quickly. I think it was just one summer, something came up for me. I was getting ready to go overseas and train for six months and I just couldn't, the, 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 it just seemed too big. It seemed too big. And all the things that I would possibly have to work through, I'm sure going over by myself. And the fencing community is just a huge community. And I would have been uh, completely supported. And, again, coming back to uh, just reaching out and talking to somebody about it. Well, say, hindsight, hey,
0: right? Hindsight,
1: yeah, hindsight. I'm feeling anxious about this. I need some, some coaching. I need some help around it. So I just I just shut it down. Because that's always the best thing to do, right? Just <laughs> shut it down. Just walk away. Wasn't meant to be. <laughs> uh, but it was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough, so my teammates didn't know how to talk to me.
0: How did you carry that through the rest of your college days? Did you Did you graduate from college?
1: Uh, I, no, I did not graduate. I stayed there for two more years, and I um, came, I probably was like maybe a semester away. Wow, what from, made you uh, quit? From uh, just, well, frustration, just frustration. I'm sure there was a lot of the, the regret and the, the resentment that was building up, and just not feeling satisfied with how I was participating in school. I took a introduction to theater class my freshman year and just loved it, just loved it. And there was just that self-expression and just everything about it. And I certainly could have participated in the theater department, not being a theater major, but I was all or nothing. I'm going to be a theater major. And there's parts of it that I really, really enjoyed. There's other parts I was like, why, why am I even doing this? And I almost felt obligated. And uh, then when I start to go down that road, then it's figuring out how to just get out. Which I started to do with the with the fencing. so the pattern pattern continued. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't I just didn't continue the to fulfill the even some of the basic requirements. Did to, your parents
0: have anything to say
1: about that? They did through listening, but there wasn't uh, any type of uh, I'm, I'm putting this in quotes intervention.
0: No plan you was know, put in place uh, or no any plan
1: help uh, was was really put in place, and I think they were going off of what I was saying.
0: In retrospect, are you... Are you- Irritated by that or are you glad that they didn't push you?
1: That's uh, I think there's parts there's, there's, there's a part of me that's like, you know, what why couldn't you fight for me type of a thing a response? But I I don't think that's the prevailing response uh, I think uh, just a lot of a lot of the upbringing that I experienced was embracing the experience and Going back to the conversations having certain conversations and especially being being educators, but just parents in general I remember my, my, my dad talking to me specifically one time about just doing the best that he could as if it was a bad thing when we were talking, this was years ago, when we were talking about different things.
0: About he himself doing yeah uh-huh. Yeah,
1: just doing doing the best that, that he could as a parent uh, as if he was making judgments about that and that's that's all we can do and I think in the moment they were uh, uncertain how to, how to progress with the conversation because they didn't want to ostracize me in any way but then still... Give me an opportunity to really think about what I want to do in the moment, but also looking future as well. And I completely could have changed my major. I could have stayed. I've had a lot of time to think about <laughs> how I would have done it. Uh,
0: do you ever think about going back and finishing? I,
1: I do. Yeah, I do. And what would that look like? And and applying whatever credits I can, but also just starting over, just finding something that just calls to me. And, and if I want to go back to school and continue my education, I certainly can't which wasn't accessible to me years ago. i just, it was, it was just ter- too terrifying.
0: What happened when you left college?
1: I, I followed my heart, Susan. I followed my heart, I, there was a, my girlfriend at the time was living in New Jersey. So that became my next focus point. It's like it was an opportunity for me to leave school legitimately. You know, I'm in love. So I, I went to New Jersey and hung out for probably eight, nine months. With and the then I, I, yeah, I wasn't, we weren't living together. She was still living at home and I had a little apartment and I found a coaching job, a fencing coaching job at a high school, which was actually uh, just a really, a lot of fun. Just the patterns, the patterns that I've talked about just came into play and I'm like, I'll go home now and then I'll start training again. I was going to start training again. And
0: you broke up with the girl. The I woman. did not. No,
1: just, uh, oh. just decided to go back home and we were going to.
0: Long distance
1: can, can it continue the long distance.
0: Did you notice in any of the kids that you were training that they were uh, that any of them were on the path that you were on, where they the glimmer was starting to fade, but they maybe had talent, but didn't know where to put everything, which boxes to put it all in?
1: I don't think I was from a from a specific just uh, teaching the sport, and and these were uh, high school kids. I don't think I was necessarily. Listening that way mm-hmm. uh, back then, the, specifically around the sport, everyone was being engaged and having a having a good time. But as I look back now, uh, there's a lot of lot of experiences that people are getting when they're tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade, and you know you have your foundation activities that provide community and teamwork and all mm-hmm. that. And then then there's everything that happens outside of that. And for me, the focus was just just being responsible for the athletic part of it, the sport part of it. So I had my time there, and then I and then i would move on
0: and you came back to california
1: came back to california i just i inched back into my house my driveway with maybe like fumes uh, in the in the car it was a quick trip across the country
0: <laughs> when you said to your then girlfriend i think i'm going to make this change was there something brewing in you or was it simply there's a job i'm going to go take it because it seems that up until that point, you were uh, you reacted. You weren't really action; you were reaction. It was that the case there.
1: Yes, and there was no job that I was moving. I was just moving back home. I what, was just, what caused that? I, I just the uh, I, the same things that I was feeling when I was fencing, but also in school. It's just the, the lack of. Um, there was nothing that was motivating me, motivated me there, and it, it was still just kind of the whole. Discovering who I am, where my focus is. And how uh, old are you at that point? Uh, let's see, I was 22 years after... I went to Santa Monica City College for two years. Basically a year and a half. And then once I got into college... <laughs> once I, I basically transferred. Actually, I didn't transfer because I went in as a freshman.
0: Wait, you came back and went to school again?
1: No, no this oh, is... beforehand. Bef- yeah, beforehand, yeah. So I was two years two years older than a freshman. Uh, so then I think I was 22, 23, 24...
0: And did you go back to your parents' place? Yeah, I
1: went back, got a couch, uh, slept on the couch for a little bit, and then ended up moving out. But everything at that point like I didn't, didn't feel like I was being motivated, or I wasn't motivating myself, and there was didn't seem like there was any prospects. And then the, the, the safety of home, the idea of home, came into the brain, and so it, there was some relief attached to it. So, of course, I latched right onto that, and I'm going home. I just packed my stuff up, packed my car up, and... Drove all, Drove across country.
0: But there wasn't any kind of breakup or anything like that. You're just, this is what I'm going to
1: Yes, do. There, we're just going to continue. We t- 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 how talked did she about, take that? I'm trying to think about the, the conversation and how it went. And I don't know if I can actually remember yeah. how, the, how the conversation went. And uh, if it's something that I, I'm sure I didn't, since I decided I was going to go, i just going to go and then we'll figure everything out. And probably not, uh, well, of course, not taking responsibility for having a more correct conversation at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then this is what we're going to work on. This is what we're going to do. If, it's, if we're going to continue the relationship, if we still want to, if it's something we both want to work on and then make the drive. I think it was just, I got to get out of town.
0: I'm out of here. I got to get out of
1: town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's... Uh, How long until
0: you broke up after that?
1: Uh, let's see... Because she, she did come out to visit me, uh, so probably maybe four to six months, probably four to six months. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also a a, a, a passive way of
0: getting out of, of, getting something, out of something,
1: yeah, and just letting it run its course.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Susan. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good, it's good.
0: <laughs> You're back in... California and you are on mom dad's couch and you're trying to figure out what's next and then you decide you're gonna coach again
1: uh no I was gonna train I was gonna start training again and I just basically didn't know what I wanted to do I didn't know where and so fencing had always been um uh part of my life at that point so I just kind of it was my safety net mechanism and I I hung it on I'll start training again and then I ended up getting a uh, a job just working in the equipment store that they had the fencing center so I was around my community and I was still able to train and be of service at, at the uh, equipment store and then I think I got a job soon after that at Staples and I was working at Staples for a little while but still just kind of doing a variety of things not really committing to one thing and that was it that was it for, for, for a little while. And I think, I think truly, just from a passion point of view, I, I knew that I didn't really want to... The fencing is one thing, but, and I can certainly continue to fence, participate as much as I want to, and, and get what I get out of it. But as far as setting, setting myself up by saying, I'm going to start training for the Olympics. I'm going to start training and go to national competitions. And I did a couple, and then I just realized the, uh, just the focus. The motivation wasn't there. The passion wasn't there. And I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what I was really looking for at the moment it's not what i wanted to focus on
0: do you think you set yourself up for that oh certainly yeah, yeah. certainly
1: but, and i and that's you know part of that that grandiose behavior as far as yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make the olympic team i'm gonna and i was certainly on an olympic path at some point or actually a high national level path at some point uh and then veered away from that but then pulled that out of the hat every once in a while to set that set that bar really high
0: Hearing all of this, it's very interesting, knowing what I know about you, which we will unfold and unfurl as we go. Do you think that that was an indicator of addictive personality?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and part of, yeah, it's just kind of the, the all or nothing. Uh, and it almost takes, takes me out of the equation as far as not having to, to think about something or, or just um, uh, participate openly and if it's something that I enjoy doing or if it's a person that I enjoy spending time with but it's the the all-or-nothing aspect of it and yeah you you offered up the the addictive personality part of it that that comes in that comes into play for sure
0: yeah what happens next
1: my grandmother my grandfather passed away and I moved in see this we're back in 94 and I um, ended up sharing an apartment with uh, the manager of the fencing center for a couple of months but before that, I moved in with my grandmother because she was living in, in her house in Silver Lake uh, by herself, and, and there was uh, plenty of plenty of room, and so I wanted to get out of my parents' house just because I needed to give them their space, and the couch was only only available for so long. But also, my grandmother loved uh, the company, and, and I really enjoyed spending time with her, and so I was able to help her out, and then I was able to find a little bit of a uh, balance on my own with uh, moving into an apartment with my friend that was running the fencing center at the time. And that lasted probably about eight months.
0: And then you meet Amy.
1: Then I meet Amy, yeah. it's just.
0: And Amy was a coach or was she a she student? She was
1: uh, an adult fencer. And she had started at another club and then came over to try the club I was at, which was the largest club in California. And everyone in Southern California at that time ended up at that club at some point. And it's just one of those things, you know, I want to say it was those eyes locked in across a crowded room, but I think it was me. And then she was involved with somebody at the time, but the conversation just started. And,
0: and she's older than you at this uh, point. She's, older, I, yeah. she's always older she's than always you. She's always older.
1: Yeah, it? she's older. Yeah. yeah. how many years? Seven years.
0: Seven years older.
1: Seven years, yeah. Interesting.
0: Do you think part of you was drawn to the older energy of, oh, this is somebody that can tell me how to be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's just some safety in that just for my as far as as far as society says which I don't subscribe to it, but just as a starting point the uh, I was a late bloomer and I know I bloomed when I bloomed I'm still blooming so there was a there was a part of the, the safety of it someone that you know that can kind of work me through the process and take care of me and be safe so yeah and then there's just the just the energy just the energy sure. I mean who you know how do we how do we, you how do can't we decide
0: quantify it, how no. do we
1: decide yeah yeah
0: it just is what it is there's a
1: lot of people that would come through come through the fencing center and But for whatever reason, hey, yeah, who's that over there? (laughs) I had to bide my time. And then she let me know when she was finished with that relationship. It was at some tournament.
0: Were you developing a friendship all along?
1: Yeah, especially for fencing. I know other sports are the same, but the way that we train, it's it's, it's indoors. Uh, For the most part, it's after work, as far as the adults are concerned. And people will go there either they have dinner before, they'll go over right, right from the work and people are training and, and working out together and in an intense environment for a couple hours a night and sometimes three, four nights a week depending on how they want to participate. You hear so that?
0: Singles? Sounds like uh, fencing might be the place to meet a person.
1: <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of bonding. A lot of bonding. We go out and eat dinner afterwards and just hang out. And again, uh, community is a big thing for me these days and it was just a wonderful community. And then people would go to their other lives and and then uh, meet three or four times a week to uh, poke each other. Yeah. <laughs> Just to uh, have a good time in a physical environment, which is great.
0: And you and Amy started dating and immediately got serious.
1: Yes. Yeah, our first date, we went to Four Weddings and a Funeral. The movie? The movie, yes. We didn't actually go to Four Ways. I mean, funeral. it's
0: worth asking.
1: It was, well, that would be a good way. It would be a good, a good first date. <laughs> and I, I remember going to that, and we uh, I think then we uh, were not together for a week. We'd see each other at the Fencing Center, but after the first date, but then after that, it was basically we were inseparable. Game on. Yeah.
0: From the beginning, did you think this is the person I'm going to marry?
1: Well, my uh, my all-in personality, and I've had years of thinking about it, I was... Uh, I, I, there was no, and there was a lot of assuming uh, when I when I think about it now. Um, but I was just all in right from the beginning, and so whatever whatever course that took. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a traditional approach as far as having a certain amount of time, and then getting married, and then you know the, the family and everything that goes along with that. And I think uh, just the, there's a I guess a certain instinct something it seemed like I didn't have to think about this is the way you do things so there's almost on I, I don't want it to come across incorrectly but it almost was like an obligation starting to
0: expectation at least
1: yeah and, oh that's better an expectation as far as yeah the obligation comes later <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the expectation as far as this is the way that it goes
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's some naive qualities to that as well too
0: was this the first time you'd felt truly in love
1: no. I uh, There's two college girlfriends, both of them lasting about a year and a half.
0: You were a virgin when you got with Amy. Yes. Yeah. yes. So it's interesting to me if you're willing to talk about it. Yeah. Especially because I think there we is... We can
1: always a- edit it out if I uh, choose yeah, to you later. F- you panic, <laughs> that
0: there's a an assumption, let's say gender males are have a proclivity to have sex as soon as humanly possible whenever possible right but here you say we're in two long-term relationships and you have sex why do you think that is
1: there's some insecurity uh around that as well there was some excitement too thinking about that i had some we had my college girlfriends and i we both had conversations around that and and there was just a conscious choice to uh to wait uh, not
0: religious, not. Not
1: religious, no. A little bit, a little bit on one, but but for the most part, just based on the conversations, not. But a part of it was just a comfort level, just to not to add that because we we're just having such a good time together, uh, and there's a lot of things you can do without having sex, and. Uh, cribbage, you
0: can do cribbage.
1: Cribbage, yes. And you know. Yes. No, I know. I love Uno. Yeah, if you know, you know. <laughs> and. Uh, now you're making me blush. I'm
0: sorry. No, that's
1: good. I, I like the feeling. I love that we can speak <laughs> in a dirty joke in there. <laughs> so it was one more thing to add to the the mix, the responsibility uh, and everything that goes along with that. And I, it was just safer. It was just, it was just-
0: Emotionally. Was
1: emotionally, and also probably, um, yeah, just, just emotionally. Yes, and as far as the male proclivity, the, the college age, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of conversation, and I, I became pretty good about steering conversations away People always wanted to know what my situation was. And they also steered the conversation, you know, in certain ways. But it was, there was an idea that, you know, the college males have to be a certain way, especially back in the, uh, at that time.
0: Sure. Did and you feel any pressure? I, I'm... Did you, did people come in and say, like, "Oh, are you gay or something? Why are you not sleeping with your girlfriends?" Or did you have any of that kind of? I didn't I get any like of that, that pressure. like that era, there was a lot of like, "What are you gay?" as if that was some sort of a bad thing. But
1: I, I never, I never, never got any pressure like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it was great. Never got any pressure. I mean, I didn't offer up. Sure. Uh, lots of opportunities for conversation around that. Um, but uh, with a few people, a few of my closer teammates, if, if the question came up, it wasn't like I was leading with that. But if, the, if anyone came up, I was fine with with talking about it.
0: What do you think was different about Amy that you thought, oh, right, now I'm going to do the thing, the sex I, thing.
1: I, I it just, I don't know. <laughs> or older
0: woman, maybe. And-
1: it, possibly. It's interesting how I think about it now as far as starting a relationship with somebody and definitely pursuing that, that, that part of a relationship and having fun with it without the all or nothing approach to it. Uh, which comes back later for me as well because Amy and I were together for 20 years and there's a certain uh, approach that I thought was needed to experience certain things in a relationship you have to get married and uh,
0: oh you mean you thought in order to have sex you yeah, should get married yeah oh, well actually. going forward
1: but- yeah, going forward beyond that after, after the time with Amy was over
0: Okay, hold on. I want to make sure I understand this. You're saying that after Amy, you believed that you shouldn't have sex with anyone unless you were married. Uh, that I was your belief system then? I,
1: I don't think it was uh, an overt belief system. I just think it was uh, from a safety point of view. Uh, just you as mean far like STDs?
0: As, no, just
1: as far as emotional comfort. Got it. Emotional comfort. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, emotional comfort. And again, going back to just, I never casually dated... Uh, never had casual sex before, so it wasn't on my radar. You
0: know any practice at that? There's
1: no practice, yeah, and it's certainly something that you know I can be. If I'm open to the conversation, great, I can participate in how I see fit. But if I shut it down, then the only option for me is
0: it's all or nothing.
1: All or nothing. Sure. All or nothing. Which so. feeds
0: perfectly into what you were. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, with so what Amy, I, uh, So you meet Amy. Yes. You, you fall in love. Yes. And you start dating, and then you fall off, whichever order it went in.
1: Uh, we moved in. She was living with a roommate. They had actually got a house together. And so we we moved in together and got engaged.
0: And from the start of your relationship, was she already saying things like, I don't want to grow old, or I don't want to be old, because I know that was kind of a part of her rhetoric.
1: That, uh, that, that came later. You know, that whole first year, just... List out yeah i just learned you know just the adventures just learning about each other we had the, the fencing as a sport i ended up becoming her coach and you were
0: her coach her, yeah oh interesting
1: t- taking over the the coaching duties and she was starting to compete more regularly and how I, is
0: that combining those two worlds it was tough yeah i bet
1: it was really tough it was really tough in the beginning to separate that and we had to work at it together and i also had to work at at it myself just to really uh take the ego out and and not personalize it and but also set boundaries around that and that took a while that took a that took a long time
0: <laughs> i bet yeah
1: and i'm I'm laughing because when i think about it i'm like wow I, we survived that <laughs>
0: yeah because i mean let's be honest that's got to be a tricky scenario
1: yes she was a, a
0: champion too wasn't she yes
1: yeah. and she was not a gray area uh, person it was black and white which is actually interesting thinking about the uh, the uh the addictive personality approach i mean when she would lock into something that was it. There was no uh, nothing else, and so consequently, when she would get pushed over the edge uh, about something emotionally, and whatever emotion was there, if she got angry about something, that was it, and she couldn't see anything else. And that made her a really fierce competitor, which is fantastic. She's probably one of the greatest competitors that I that I've ever uh, experienced and seen, just from her mindset. But it came with a came with a toll. I mean, there was a huge. Uh, a huge price to pay emotionally because she was never and this is these are my observations and words over time but uh she was never never satisfied never satisfied and you'll often find that is the case with people that are participating in any competitive sport that requires a lot of training and and technical proficiency because they're um the the wins and i'm putting in end quotes the the wins are are fleeting
0: yeah, and they're immediately looking for the next thing.
1: Completely. And it's almost like getting a fix.
0: It is absolutely. It's not even almost like answered. it. I, I would say that it is, a, it is like that.
1: And somehow... That winning, too,
0: can be addictive. That's the thing that, that I think is an important thing to mention in talking about any kind of addiction behavior. Not only be drugs and alcohol. And I've said that before on the show. It can yes. be running. <clears throat> it can be eating. It can be feeling anger. That can be addictive. We see that all over social media, right? There's completely, all completely. sorts of things that will kick off that part of the brain. And for you, I imagine having a personality that is all or nothing emotionally. When you're used to running far away from emotions, what an interesting combination for a couple.
1: It it was it was very very interesting uh, because there was um, and there's that instinct to um, to help but also knowing that help help is giving space and help can take the form of not looking like help by um, separation in the sense of not having to be on the person all the time and trying to get in there and fix it. There's a process to it and uh, in the beginning there was, I was um, internalizing personalize everything and it was emotionally really draining and I didn't realize it at the time. It was afterwards I would look back and I'm like wow I invested far more than I needed to, to be the, the best advocate for her, coach, but also a husband, confidant, friend, all that. And the other part of that is knowing that I can't fulfill all those roles. It's not my role to do that. And that was part of the all or nothing, like somehow, and I, it came back on me, like somehow I'm a failure or I'm less than because I couldn't provide all that. And that's not my role to, to do that. And I think in the beginning, when we were doing the dance and trying to figure it out, there was parts of the the coaching environment that were really great for both of us and there was other parts that were holding both of us back that we just didn't have conversations around which was part of our marriage as well and it was it's kind of interesting the um in some cases we were we really great at the the coach-student relationship and other times we were really great at uh, the being husband and wife and it was it's interesting for me to look at what how to merge those two so we can just have the best experience possible in the moment and everything that goes along with that like there was times where i didn't want to be married to amy and uh i didn't know how to have those conversations with her because there was definitely an opportunity for us to have conversations and again my my patterns came up and it's like oh, i'll maybe talk about it with somebody else and then even looking at well how can i get out of this like i'm going to be somehow better or, or served by getting out of it as opposed to leaning into it and Let's have a conversation about it.
0: Why do you think it was that you didn't run in this scenario?
1: Uh, I think in sitting here now, having you ask me that question, because uh, I knew there was a, a better option, and also there's there's the love that was com- completely present, and I and I don't want to automatically say because I loved her, because there's a lot that goes in with that. There's a lot that a lot goes goes in with that, so it's not just an obvious because I loved her and that's it. That's just the beginning of the conversation. So I knew that there was uh, something more. It just comes up as it was a better way to do things. Mm. Uh, And also I wasn't satisfied with the way I'd responded to things in the past.
0: So you're developing a self-awareness of the The self-awareness,
1: yes. Yeah, just of of the pattern and maybe not uh, being able to uh, verbalize it. Sure. uh, But more uh, reactive and it seemed like I was reacting less a certain way with those things. And maybe because she was really reactive with... She took on that role, and so maybe it was possible for me to see, satisfy that need to react a certain way. But she was doing it, and then, you know, I could come in and 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 fix it. That's supposed (laughs) to.
0: Sure. How long into your marriage was she diagnosed? And did you did you notice anything leading up to that? Were there signs that something was amiss?
1: Uh, There was only some. some swelling some waxing and waning swelling that was happening around her her thyroid gland in her in her neck and uh but as far as anything physical beyond that anything um you know just in her behavior or Mm -hmm. you know mental state there was nothing other than just feeling like she was having um the onset of a flu or something like that one of the parents of a client had her father went through the same thing and just based on the way the swelling, she said to Amy, "You should have this go checked out." And actually, Amy did go, and it took us a year to get a diagnosis. Just right. going, just going through the process and and the time, and getting the test and some of the tests not being conclusive. And the other thing is that we found that the doctors, the ones that we were seeing and participating with in the in the in the in the programs, uh, were really hesitant about giving well testing for certain things based on the um the percentages but also then giving the news and amy was very like i said she was very she was very direct with stuff like that she didn't want someone to beat around the bush if i got something to deal with tell me and she had she was really upset when the diagnosis for lymphoma first came back because she felt she lost a whole year of, I was, I of would feel to that treatment way too. and everything that went along with that yeah and uh anyway so then that started a whole nother a whole another phase a phase of our of our relationship as it started to progress, and with our business that we had at the time and the treatments and everything, we fencing actually opened a, a a fencing club, and I was still working at the other place, mm-hmm. and that was a whole other dynamic. Being owners, married, <laughs> uh, coach—I mean, you really mixed stuff. It was twenty-four-seven.
0: So what happens next? She's been diagnosed, and. That has to be, especially for somebody who is a champion athletic person, to be given this information that there is a tiny thing in your body that's going to try and destroy you from the inside out. I mean, right. how do you wrap your head around that?
1: I'm still wrapping my head around it. And it was that was uh, years ago. We went through the diagnosis and we got with a specialist, an oncologist that uh, deals with that type of uh, lymphoma, lymphoma specifically and got all the typing, which is more testing, and basically uh, started a chemotherapy. I know they have immunotherapy options now that are really effective. Chemotherapy was really the only option back then. And yeah. she was upset about that because it's basically the analogy at the time that someone shared with her was it's like firebombing the, uh, the inside of a, of a house to kill a cockroach. And... That's what she said. She felt like when she started to go through the process more in the beginning. There's kind of an excitement. There's a relief that yeah, I'm going to take care of this. And then the reality of it. And everyone's body handles it differently. So there's no one thing. And it just it just crushed her uh, from the uh, mentally, but also from the inside as well. Just her body was just started to completely changing. And I think that's when the uh, getting back to what you asked earlier. I think that's when the conversations first started because I her family. She her family has a uh, has a history of of cancer and she was hoping that it would skip her generation she definitely was hoping that it would skip her her brother because of his family and his 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 children and everything and her brother's fine uh, but it it got her and i think early on she was she was convinced and she shared as much it's not a matter of, of if it gets her as far as it takes her life but when and i think she started to even though the treatments in the beginning were successful, I think she started to, to kind of change her her mindset around that, which was great from a competitor's point of view because it was she had nothing to lose when she would go out there and, and compete. Once she got to a point when she could start competing again, and she was just unstoppable in certain situations, uh, and then all the energy would go into that, and there wasn't there wasn't a lot left for, for uh, her regular living.
0: How did her cancer? create a cancer for you two?
1: Well, I became a caregiver, and not full-blown caregiver right away, but the, just the focus uh, changed as far as, when she was feeling great, she was feeling great. And when she was, when uh, we, we got almost 18 months for the after the first chemotherapy, and then, then she relapsed. If you don't have a relapse, anything noticeable beyond two years, the percentages go way up as far as longevity. Uh, but it was 18 months, and then we did a stem cell transplant, and that was a whole different experience. And then there was another 18 months, basically after that. And then, uh, and the, for for those of that don't know, a stem cell transplant is basically a complete reset of the the body, the system. I think we got maybe six months, eight months, uh, and then she had another. Some episodes that started to come up, and it was going to require, require different treatment. And there were some other oral options that might be available, but her options were limited because the more you treat it with the same thing, the less effective it is to the point where it's just doing more damage.
0: Were you starting to see her give up then?
1: There was moments. There was moments. and and
0: um, That's a hell of a lot to put your body through for anyone.
1: It is. And uh, she, I mean, there was times she was always active, very athletic. And, and I think the second, after the stem cell transplant, she... Uh, was starting to feel good and she was gonna go for a walk she uh, basically shuffled and she described it as that she shuffled down to the end of the driveway and she was just exhausted and she just took a breath and she looked at the street and then she just turned around and shuffled back and that was it uh, for that exercise but also it was a big shift for her as far as taking advantage of the opportunities when she really did feel good uh, from a from a um, from a fencing, from a training point of view, knowing that there's times when she's she's not gonna feel good. And I think it was after the stem cell transplant and that she started to kind of relapse again. I think that's when uh, she really started to change her her mindset as far as she's not gonna be around for much longer. And just setting things up around that. There was some one time she went to compete and the doctor told her that they didn't advise that. And she's like, I'm going anyways. I was proud of that because she was, she was gonna go compete. She was gonna do it her way. And if she dropped dead on the strip, uh, then that's what happens.
0: I mean, that's badass.
1: I, it is. That's a, you know, that's a good story.
0: <laughs> well, how are you taking all of this along the way as you're starting to see that she's not gonna get through it?
1: Well, I, it was difficult for me to have that conversation. If I voiced anything around the fact that she was getting worse ultimately over time and not better, that would acknowledge the situation and i didn't want to acknowledge it i didn't want to accept it so i i took the ostrich approach on some level and
0: the ostrich approach yeah, yeah. just
1: put my head in the ground i didn't want to look at it i was doing most of the running the business and when she was healthy she would come in and and she would participate and uh, everyone just loved her energy everyone loved her energy and and from an ego point of view there's times where I'm like hey you know what who's what about me uh, but i got over that really quickly because everyone everyone has that it's just where it where it gets projected and once the the disease started to take hold uh, because just the the cancer becomes a cumulative effect any of the treatments and so it's then she started having conversations about quality of life Hmm. Uh, which again I I didn't want to have those conversations I didn't feel prepared of course now my conversations would be completely different but at the time I just didn't feel prepared and and part of my role was to be the uh, the rah rah person, but also take care of the necessities, Get, run the business, uh, take care of the, the coaching duties, um, you know whatever needed to happen. And that's when uh, when I realized, after, in the moment, sometimes. But looking back, just the caregiving role, how early it started, I didn't really think that it started until she got more sick. But it was in place right from the beginning. And then that, I mean, there was, it was became twenty four seven.
0: Who accepted it first? Oh, she did. She did. Yeah, she did. Was she mad that you weren't accepting it, or did she understand
1: uh both uh, I think um we had we started to have more conversations uh around it, mm-hmm. uh but not just a hundred percent put all the cards on the table let's let's get into this when I think back about it, that's upsetting to me now, and I want to make myself wrong for it, but I know I was just doing the best that I could in the moment, and it was i, I wouldn't change anything, and the behavior started to change a little bit around that. Uh, she would always she would enjoy her wine beverages, and it just became the only place that she could feel good when she was being able to drink wine. Yeah, just have some wine on the couch with uh, all of our animals that bonded completely bonded to her, and they just surrounded her. They were great charge nurses when uh, I'm I think off.
0: animals know when you're sick; they step up and completely. get extra.
1: <laughs> completely, they were just pressed up against her, and and that was that was really when she felt the best
0: and were you drinking with her at this point
1: yeah she started to be down my my path of of drinking i don't want to speak for her but it just became a uh a, a place of uh well just feeling like she had some control over something
0: and, Makes sense. and
1: it made her and it made her feel good and i'm you know i'm not one to i'm not going to say anything about it i mean if if there's and there's times that she said i should think she's uh maybe not helping out her health because she might be drinking a little bit too much and, you know, we just would work through it, but it wasn't anything that uh, needed to have a conversation uh, beyond that.
0: I feel like at that point, if you want to eat filet mignon and, you know, gobs of French fries or, you know, oh smoke crack or whatever the hell, I feel like you're, you're entitled at that point. When you know that death is coming, it seems that the last effort of some control that you really truly should do whatever you freaking want to your body completely i know this is a right to die state did you help her shuffle off the mortal coil or did she do it on her own terms
1: probably a year before she had started to talk about quality of life and uh, she actually found an organization in switzerland yeah dr
0: nietzsche i interviewed him
1: Okay, fantastic. I can yeah. look at that It's it such a good
0: episode. Yeah. A whole kit.
1: Everything. Yeah. And then you come and you stay, and she actually you know, signed up for it and there was yeah. a certain initiation. Uh, not initiation, but there was a there was a fee attached to it. Yeah. And of course, uh, I I balked at the fee.
0: Let's because it's like thirty five dollars or something, right?
1: Yeah, I can't remember it's what it was, it was. It's not a lot. I think it's to
0: it's to get people <coughs> to just willy nilly go get a suicide kit.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Our right to die laws are pretty messed up, that we allow human beings to suffer so immensely, truly for the people that are surviving. I mean, it's not for the person dying. They're dying, and in a lot of cases, in misery. (coughs) And to have dominion over that part of one's life and death is an empowering thing. But of course, you have to fight against all the people who are like, don't go, don't go.
1: Back then, California was not. Mm. And uh, she wanted to move to Oregon yeah Oregon and Oregon and
0: Washington and there's there's now several states that are allowing and right to uh, die
1: That was not a conversation that I was willing to have at the time and again it'd be completely different now and I've done some writing about this uh, as well and worked with a therapist about it but uh, I was always about well what about me what about me and just you kind know, of personalizing it just like you said and and uh, not being able to uh, see a clear, path to step out of out of the way of that and really, as a, as a caregiver, as a, as a husband, just to really be, as a partner, to be supportive and appreciative of the opportunity that, that we have to be able to work through this together. Mm-hmm. In cleaning up the house one time, I found a box and I pulled it out and I hear this audible groan from Amy. I think she was in the same room and I'm like, hey, what's this box? She goes, don't look at it. And it was a uh, helium kit. And there was a lady in Oregon. I think it was in Oregon that was selling these helium kits. And it was um, a basically a plastic bag, if you will, that you would put over your head, and it would attach a certain way, and then you would attach a bottle of helium to it, and it would—you just turn it on, you go to sleep, and then that's that's it. So I'm
0: here Italian Yeah, you can sound <laughs> like that, and you can you can laugh until you <laughs>
1: inhale enough uh, helium. Wait, finding uh, somebody die. in
0: that state seems really over the top. Because I know for Dr. Nitschke, his kits, you just fall asleep. You you know, it's a shot and, and then another shot and then you're and sleepy time. Then you're found sleepy time peaceful or you're with the people around you, not with a bag over your head. Well, it's a lot.
1: Well, and, <laughs> lot and I and I, I just rolled my eyes and I just, you know, I I, I just put it back where it was. I just said, that, put it back where it was. And it was only after, uh, later on when I was cleaning up the house, after she had passed away that I found the bottle. She got it from Party City and there was a bottle, a big bottle of helium that you blow balloons with. And uh, she said that she was sitting there one day with it on on her head and the only reason she didn't do anything is because she couldn't figure out how to complete the attachment to make it work. And I found out some of this later after reading her journal and she said that I could certainly read that afterwards and I was horrified I was horrified because again I, I, I personalize it I'm like you know she's not thinking about me or I'm a failure and coming home to that like part of me I was like wow that would that's what
0: I'm saying coming home to that a little intense
1: it got to the point when things started to really turn like the 2013 was a was a pretty pretty good year and we were leading up to December of 2013 and she she started to feel really good, she started to feel good, she was walking more, and she started to think about, anytime she started thinking about fencing and competing again and training, I, I knew we were going in the right direction. And then January of 2014, things just changed, she started to lose balance, we were spending, spending more time in the hospital, uh, she couldn't teach anymore, and then it, it, it became a situation where we were going to have to have somebody come in, and she did not, she did not want anybody to to be part of it. She didn't want to be, she, for, she would say it, she didn't want to be a burden. She didn't want anybody to, to, to come in. And also there was an uh, accepting uh, of the finality of what was happening. One of the things I was reading is that the, uh, when, you're, when someone's in the dying process, which I realized that she was in after we turned the corner into January, just the cumulative effect changes the entire body and things just start to shut down and they just do it at, at different times. Cognitive ability changes and the receding of the consciousness uh, happens and I started to uh, I started to see that. But it, it became a um, situation where I would go to work and I was just anxious all the time. And I know my coaching changed around that time just to where my, where my focus was. And I was trying to be as even keel as possible, but then I didn't know what I was gonna find when I came home. I didn't know if she was just gonna be expired on the couch. And when she started talking about taking her own life, I didn't know what I was gonna find. And also, she could have fallen and hit her head. that happened a couple of times uh, as well. Uh, you know she wasn't planning on that, of course, but things really started to change and that's when uh, i when I started to for me have that more present realization and conversation about this is gonna go a certain direction. It was April ninth that took her into the hospital <coughs> excuse me uh, and that was for the last time, and she was there for a week and then I decided to, and that's one thing she said. She goes, "Don't let me die in the hospital." She goes, "I'm not, I'm not going to do it." And so there was an opportunity to do hospice, and if it was at home or in the in the hospital, and I said, "No, we're taking her home." And uh, so we took her home, set her up in this bed in the living room. My mom was invaluable. She came over, and she so so local. She came over, and she just spent I don't know, like two weeks two two weeks me, with me. We were trading hospital runs, and I had to come home and get some sleep. But when we did finally bring her bring her home, I woke up and uh, I was. There was a couch I was right by the bed, and but I just heard this this noise, and I'm waking up, and I I was very aware of her breathing patterns and everything, and I just hear this ticking, tick 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 tick, and it was one of our little Pomeranians, just phenomenal little adorable creatures walking around the bed because they would always sleep with her and it was the fingernails on the wood floor because he was trying to find a way up and it was tick 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 and so I was able to uh, pick him up and I hadn't put him in the bed yet and, and put him in the bed and he just curled up and that was it so then I made sure that I got all the animals up there and some of them found their own way up there the other ones needed to be put up there but it was a complete complete experience that I didn't feel that I was prepared for yet I was completely prepared for it by uh leading uh, with everything leading up to it
0: so is that the night she passed away
1: Wednesday that I brought her home and then it was that Friday Friday the the eight the 18th April 18th 2014 at seven fifty one a.m
0: <laughs> and were you present with her I was yeah
1: yeah it was important I wanted to wanted to be there and I know the um the, the the breathing started to change and there's a whole process that the, that the body goes through I, I won't describe it
0: was she conscious at all at this point no
1: not at this point one of the hospice nurses said the hearing is the last thing to go uh, so there was when she first came back to the house I put uh, some headsets on played some of the classical music from her her playing that she she loved to hear was talking to her as I uh, as I found the words and just being with her and I remember um, you know holding her hand and and just feeling and seeing everything that goes with a human being, in this case, Amy, taking her last breath. And it was very apparent, and you could hear it, see it, feel it, and she inhaled, and then she exhaled, uh, and that was it.
0: What an honor that you had.
1: Susan, completely, completely. And maybe not necessarily realizing it consciously at that exact moment, but completely feeling it. And just from a visceral point of view, and there was a relief, There there was relief a lot and i uh there's still part of me uh i have to be honest that feels um there's um there's a regret um there's almost a a, a, sorry a a resentment like i didn't do enough and uh that's part of my my process completely that's part of my journey and uh but i know that i did i did everything i was supposed to do
0: well i can offer to you this that for a person like you, who had had a history of running, and getting as far away from that kind of feeling within you as possible, that you stuck it out through the very end. This is a huge. That's huge. So, thank you. Honor yeah, I feel yourself that. for that. No,
1: I, I feel that. And she, uh, she even said as much in her journal. She would write when she was sick, and she wouldn't write when she was feeling well. And so she had a, a journal that was intermittent over over seven years, and, uh, and she would even talk about that. And she would talk about, she didn't, know, uh, she didn't know, first of all, she didn't know why I stuck around. <laughs> and uh, she knows, and she said she, she couldn't do it with, uh, without me.
0: It's a big deal. That must have been surreal to read those journals.
1: It was, and she actually, um, I know I shared it with you uh, before, but she wrote a goodbye letter. And I uh, actually found it. She wrote it in October of 2013, so it was basically six months before she passed away. Again, I'm cleaning up the desk. Guess I'm always cleaning stuff, but I pulled out some paperwork, and, I, and I'm like, oh, what's this? And she goes, she goes, oh, that's your goodbye letter. And I was like, what? She goes, you can read it if you want to. And I, there's times where I wish I had read it at that time so that we could have had a conversation around it. And, uh, maybe it was an invitation for, for her saying that for me to, uh, to read it. And then, um, and I said, no, I'm not going to read that. And I think I said, I'll wait, I'll, I'll wait, to, I'll wait for later. Something I'm sure like that, that was
0: a moment of like, no, I'm not going to read that. Cause if I read that, that means it's inevitable yeah. and there's still that fight against the inevitable.
1: Inevitable. And actually after when I did read it, of course it was a brilliant, it was one page. It was brilliant. It touched on everything that I think she you sent it to me
0: once. I, I think I read it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I touched on everything. Touched on everything that that she wanted to convey. I mean, it was basically twenty years of a relationship. She summed it up in a letter, and it was just—it was perfect. Touched on the animals, you know. Touch, touched on a few things that she wanted to share, uh, and uh, it was just—it was great.
0: How are you doing, by the way? I'm doing
1: good. I'm doing good. Okay. <laughs> good. You making me cry. Uh, <laughs> I mean,
0: I cried too. It's I so okay. Tears. I was crying also. I'm sure. No, it
1: was all tears of love and gratitude and uh, joy and just the beauty—the I mean. beauty that comes with it.
0: I, I have been with people when they've passed, you know, in the leading up points and also in the moments and and it's, you know, it's a big honor. It's painful, but it's a big honor. She passes away and how do you deal with that? When does the, the downward spiral begin?
1: Well, the downward spiral, (laughs) if we're going to characterize it, (laughs) put a nail, put a label on it, started before Mm. and as, as. I mentioned we talked about just really enjoying the wine tasting weekends and there's some wine tasting weekends that we would go away and drink a lot of wine and there's other times when we didn't we would just do a little taste and spend money on food or just out adventuring but then uh, for me after the the caregiving and then the working and coming home uh, late there was about once I was able to put her to bed and she was medicated to the point where she would be you know two to three hours and sometimes we would get more than that sometimes the pain would just cut through. And she had a high tolerance. Uh, so sometimes there was, there was a lot of medication, and it, it did its job, and sometimes it just didn't. But there was a two-, three-hour period of time where I would just sit on the couch in complete silence. Sometimes I would watch TV. Sometimes I would listen to, to music. And the, the wine drinking, it wasn't taste anymore, the wine drinking didn't work for me. And a part of me looking back realizes that I just wanted the bottom to drop out for a couple of hours so I could just completely detach and uh, that's where some of the some of the harder alcohol was we came in and we'd always have tequila around and, and have fun in traditions with that but then there was other options that became available where I could actually get some get some drinking going that would affect my mindset and my, my body, just relax me, make me less conscious of what was going on faster. That started a pattern. That started a pattern that basically became a a nightly ritual. And there was times that Amy needed some help doing certain things and I became really hyper aware of sounds. So like if there was any rustling or, or changing of sounds coming from the bedroom, I was on it right away. And I had this kind of back and forth conversation about maybe I should be more present and aware. Maybe I should be drinking as much. Maybe I should set. Anyways, that conversation was kind of there, but.
0: Did she know you were drinking?
1: Oh yeah, and I tried to pretend. When There was a couple of times when uh, I went into, she wanted to have a conversation, <coughs> excuse me. She got up, I was putting myself to bed and she would want to have a conversation. She would wake up, and she even asked me one time. She goes, "Are you out there drinking?" I'm like, "No, no, I'm not." And of course, when someone says, "No, no, they're not," and they've been drinking a lot, there's nothing they can, you know, they can say. But I, I was sure that I was in control of the, of the situation, and uh, and I know I wasn't slowing my words, which means that I was. So, and she was concerned about that. She even wrote about that in her journal. She says, "I think I turned Jeff into an alcoholic," which she can't. But again, bearing the responsibility just based on uh, personalizing it. And I do appreciate that on some level that she wanted to take that responsibility, but that was all me. That was all me, and just uh, it just became a, a regular routine. And there was a part of me that because that's not uh, I was going to say it's not my personality, but it's not a choice that I would make for myself. Something that was easily accessible, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't too hardcore. You know, I can I'm not doing the hard drugs. I'm not doing anything else. I never found that stuff. It was easily accessible. It's socially acceptable.
0: You didn't um, steal any of her medicine.
1: I didn't, and yeah, didn't, even after she passed away, which was like, there was not, I mean, she had some heavy duty stuff. I'm sure. And I was like, nope, I took it back to the doctor once I knew that they weren't going to need it anymore and they disposed of it properly. But, so yeah, the, the, the social acceptance of the, of the alcohol was easy. It was, it was easy for me to say, it's okay if I do it a little bit and really thinking that I, it. Since I never, I never drank in college, I never, you know, I was always focused on uh, on other things. And and maybe part of it, maybe there's a part of me that kn- knows, that knew about the addictive personality that if if I enjoy something too much, m- maybe I would have. So it was better for me not to even experience it, which I never did, except for one time when I turned 21. Uh, but yeah, that it became a nightly habit. Then it started to become a daily habit and not just a nightly habit. I remember uh, very vividly. Sitting on her corner of the couch, wrapped in her her blanket, sobbing into a glass of wine—probably half tears, half wine—you <laughs> know, not not really interested in it, but it was just kind of a habit. But there was a period of time for several weeks, maybe even several months afterwards, that there that wasn't something that called me at all.
0: Grief was your addiction. Grief that was time. it. Yeah. Grief was
1: it, which uh, can be
0: its own addiction as well. Completely. Yeah, if that's an all-consuming thing.
1: I was looking for external, outside ways to to deal with that grief because I was again speaking as far as the going back to the avoiding stuff I wanted to I knew it was coming there was a there was the tsunami of stuff that was coming things were building up.
0: Were you left with insane medical bills?
1: Fortunately no the insurance that s- somehow she got on that we even though the premium started to go up even before she got sick we kept we kept paying it we actually had an advocate that deals specifically with I think it's high risk transplant uh, situations, patients. And this person just walked us through the whole procedure about what's everything that's covered and the doctors and the hospitals and everything. And it was great, it was a godsend, it was a godsend. Yeah, yeah we didn't have to, have to pay anything at that point.
0: So you're starting to pick up your drinking to numb out, to escape. Was there an awareness while you were doing it or was it real detachment in that point?
1: Uh, there was, yes, there was an awareness, and I didn't want to deal with it at the moment. Both things. Yeah, both things. So there was awareness, and, and then it started to, um, it started to affect my work. It started to show up in my in my just my personal life. And I know there was friends and family that were concerned, but you, it's it's hard to uh, I think I, and again it's it's interesting how I how how I how I, I balk at wanted to use this word, but I have to look at it when I if I balk at that. But I, I became a manipulator as far as manipulating the situation. And, and for me, it, it always, uh, if I'm a happy, positive individual, it's okay, type of a thing as far as can I kind of quantifying or qualifying, you know, uh, how something is good or bad. And of course that's personal, it's, it's, all, it's all perception. But regardless, I figured out how to manipulate the situation so I can have some wiggle room. I heard somebody talking about that with, uh, with their addiction and there was wiggle room and I was trying to survive in that wiggle room. So I didn't commit fully, you know, one way or the other. Uh, and that wiggle worm is, I, I, the wiggle worm, a room, sorry.
0: <laughs> wiggle worms yeah, and ostriches. It's,
1: uh, it's, uh, yeah. there's, a,
0: there's a title for the, the show. That's the title,
1: yes. The, <laughs> <laughs> that's great, the wiggle worm. But I, 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 the, the wiggle room got smaller and smaller and smaller. And that was over years, but it got smaller and smaller and smaller. So I had to, I had to choose a path, which well, I still didn't choose it on my own. I left also, that up to somebody else. How do you mean? Because uh, uh, probably six, seven months, I think seven months after Amy passed away, I had mentioned wanting to feel normal and feeling normal for me. And I was specifically talking about being able to go out on a date, take somebody out, feel normal just to go out have a meal, have some wine uh, in a social environment outside of anything that I was doing with work. But one of my uh, friends, uh, set me up on a blind date with somebody that that they knew and it was against my same thing you know I created this this uh, almost an expectation around it went on the first date she was not looking to date anybody full-time it was just to get out and have an experience and uh, she would allow me to quote her but she was just looking for uh, dinner and sex two three times a month no texting I don't want to meet the person's parents leave me alone type of thing. That's it. All, you know, just satisfy the, what the needs are. And I, that was, uh, date number one. And then two weeks later we had date number two and then that was it. And when you talk about game on, it was back to the same set. behavior
0: of being all in, are you? And you're all actively in. drinking during this time.
1: No, no, I was uh, yeah, socially. There was a, it was social. Okay, but there. you
0: weren't going crazy or no. blackout drunk or anything no, no, no. Like that. and I
1: never that was never my mo either. As okay. far as the you know the blackout or the you know throwing up all the time, mm-hmm. it was just you know I would reach that level of feeling really good and then
0: it was a numbing device. It was a numbing anything. device. Yeah. Okay, so you end up marrying. A blind date. Woman. Yeah,
1: gotta do it. <laughs> how long were
0: you dating before you got married? It was a year. Sheesh, man, yeah. you move quick.
1: Yeah, I gotta, you know, see what I like.
0: <laughs> and how long did that go?
1: Two years as far as officially uh, being, being married, but I think in the relationship for, for four years.
0: Do you think you jumped yeah, into that so you didn't really have to deal with all the things yes. that were coming at you?
1: Yes. And again, I, I didn't want to.
0: A new distraction.
1: Uh, it was a new distraction. I mean, we didn't have to go down the marriage route. We could have experienced the things that we wanted to experience without, but for me, that was safety. That was a safety as far as the, uh, the intimacy and, and also safety in a sense of knowing that possibly some things were gonna catch up to me and uh, I would have a um, support network built in. Uh, completely selfish, completely selfish, uh, and yet.
0: What was the auger of the end?
1: It was the drinking episode started to become more frequent.
0: So you'd started drinking. I started up again.
1: and uh, starting to get desperate and desperate just as far as the financial situation, uh, but also and there was a shift in my mindset after we got married. And there's some other people that are close to me that had mentioned that as well too. I didn't want to be in that situation. Marriage <laughs> and. Yeah, I should have this conversation before instead of after. <laughs> no, and uh, but then uh, the behavior that was spiraling down. Do you and- think you
0: were drinking more in a way to have her say, "Hey, there's something wrong here," and make her leave instead of the other way around? I,
1: I would have would have shown you to the door if you had even suggested that at the time. But a hundred percent hundred mm-hmm. percent and it was a um it was a passive aggressive way it was a passive aggressive way to to put the, the responsibility on somebody else mm-hmm. and then i get to be a victim
0: mm-hmm. susan
1: you know that's the best way
0: mm. <laughs> sure it's
1: just, yeah it's easier it's easier that way and i'm joking of course uh because it's not it all comes back it all comes back
0: and also the second person ever you've ever slept with and the
1: second person yeah i was making i was getting some notches you know i'm like let's let's do this number two and you're like, I want
0: to sleep with this woman, so I'm gonna ask her to marry me. And
1: uh, Susan, I'm I I laugh, but yeah, yeah. And again, it was a it was a comfort. Maybe there's the fear. Of and there's being... nothing
0: wrong with wanting to be married in order to have sex. There's you know there's nothing wrong with that at all. But for somebody that has already you know with boundary stuff and and addiction stuff and just all all of that around you, it's certainly a red flag.
1: Uh completely. Yeah. Completely. And I'm all about green flags these days. Yeah. Yeah. That was a red flag. Uh, but, complete, <laughs> but, but completely. But and, completely. And I'm
0: sure that she is also bringing her stuff to the table as well. We don't need to talk about that because right. she's not here to, to talk about it. Right. But uh, there's a lot of red flags throwing around the field.
1: <laughs> and we have. And yes, I'm not going to speak for but we have, Elizabeth and I have talked about We've had great conversations mm-hmm. now. and. We've had a uh, we're, we're able to revisit our our relationship and the love that we we have for each other still and and just everything we uh, we share and will continue to share and we get to build a completely different foundation for friendship that that um, is sustainable. Yeah. And
0: would you say the drinking then created the death knoll or do you think that it was going to happen regardless?
1: Definitely, the drinking speeded up. I had an episode where I knew that it was going to be. A problem the next day. Uh, Elizabeth had an event that she was going to and and I was gonna go there to support her and I didn't make the best choices in the day and uh, so I was basically sleeping off and I was just drilling on myself in bed for the whole night and she was she had to operate she had to be on for her event and she was uh, completely devastated and just concerned and everything. She gave me a loving ultimatum the next day, and she gave me three things, and she said I, and she actually, we set up a time to talk so we could talk about it, and I just knew that everything was going to be completely different, and my wiggle room had, there was none left, and she brought out three things, and she said one of them is like, I'd like she, all suggestions, she said I'd like for you to go find a therapist to, uh, to talk to, and I said okay, and then the, the second one she said uh, is, uh, I'd like for you to go check out a meeting, and she actually brought one up that was close and she said, AA meeting. an AA meeting, yes, uh, there's one, there's one here. And she goes, just go see if there's something that resonates uh, with you, which was great. And then the third one, she goes, and I need to know what our finances are. And of the three, the third one was I, I was most terrified about because I was just not paying attention to the finances. I was just running everything into the ground. I, I thought that I had to present a certain lifestyle or else everything would go away. Everything was going away already, but I was just scratching, clawing, and just trying to, you know, I was in desperation mode. And I went to a meeting, and I didn't identify, I just was listening. And I wasn't listening with with everything that I had to offer. But I did find something that resonated with me, and I started to get comfortable toward the end of the meeting. Didn't look at anybody, of course, because that would be, you know, I don't don't belong. I'm not supposed to be here, Uh, but it was great. And then I was able to have a chance to just kind of think about that experience over the weekend and then just start to open that door.
0: And did you actively quit drinking at that point?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, Thursday, January 18th, 2018. Yeah, that was...
0: And you've been sober ever since? Yeah, uh,
1: sober ever since, yeah. it's so fine. Thank you. Uh, it was uh, it just complete personal transformation that happens with active participation. And that just goes for anything that, sure. I'm, that I'm participating in.
0: And did, did you find Zeke right away?
1: Uh, my main man, Zeke, uh, he showed up in March. Because that was one of the requirements, and it was therapy was uh, was to go talk to somebody And again just to see how it resonates. For the most part, once a week, every so since. that was
0: two of the three requirements. Two what of the happened three. when the finances came rolling out?
1: Well, uh, Elizabeth actually said she she was shocked. A you were one,
0: blowing up your life.
1: I uh, completely, Susan. I mean, talk about the sabotage. I, I put things in place all over. If one thing didn't work out the way that I wanted it to, as far as the sabotage, something else would have. And again, that's just, it's horrifying for me to think about it, but it's the truth. It's the truth. And it gives me a chance to to say, okay, let's, let's look at what some of the behaviors are around certain things. And as my main man, Zeke, says, let me lean into it. <laughs> let me lean into it.
0: And how long after that discussion did you and Elizabeth divorce?
1: Finalized officially in uh, 2018 in December.
0: Do you think some part of you set yourself up for failure with Elizabeth out of... Guilt for not being whatever it was you thought you were supposed to be for Amy.
1: I'm sure, I'm sure. I actually went through a whole period of feeling guilty about getting involved. It's like I almost couldn't win it at, t- at that time sure. uh, for myself, as far as feeling guilty about moving on. Whatever the moving on means, because it's not moving on. It's just continuing my life. Uh,
0: it's not my linear. Life. I'm it's, sure
1: uh, exactly. Yeah. And but just really being in that moment, uh, thinking that something had to happen a particular way, a certain way, and there was a you know, it's there was an exit stage right
0: option. <laughs> Were your family aware that this was happening? Did your sister or your parents say, whoa, Jeff, there's some there's some crazy shit going on around you right now? No. <laughs> Nobody said a word. No,
1: and it's hard. It's hard, Susan. It's hard. It's hard for people to, especially when there's the connection, the love, the family, the, the even my teammates, the friendship. And unless it's hard for them, it's hard for people to, to do like an intervention style. And also that would not have worked with me until I open the door, until I say something. And I can remember the first time that I called my mom and said that I'm went, you know, i identifying as an alcoholic and I need help. And uh, that was just a completely different world for her. Because nothing was an issue with me. I'm, I'm happy, I'm positive, I'm this, I'm rah rah, I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, I don't look like an alcoholic, my perception of what an alcoholic is until I went into the rooms the first time and stood up and identified and I, gl- I gladly stood up for 30 days and I'm like, yeah, my name is Jeff. I'm an alcoholic. You know, I'm smiling all the time because it was taking ownership of it Which I don't I didn't uh, I didn't I hadn't really done before oh, um,
0: And it sounds like it gave you an identity albeit a interesting one for somebody who was Struggling their whole life to find an identity.
1: Yes, and the, and the community
0: well this all now that we are here. Here we are today. Yes. Whatever day it is. And you are still coaching. Yes. And I, you have included in fact now you coach folks with disabilities. Yes. And you're into bike riding and so you're yes. you're really discovering who and what and why you are, it seems like. And you've been going to Zeke forever now and Yes. And how are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. I, uh, my mom would always remind me that I told her when I was really young that I was going to live to 100. Oh,
0: that so
1: awful. I'm, uh, I, I, I was like, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the back side of that now, but I, I, I feel great. I feel great physically, I feel great, emotionally, spiritually, everything mm-hmm. the, the journey for me uh, is finding my voice, and that I do have a voice, and whatever comes out of my, mouth, my mouth is great. If it's a wiggle worm, that's perfect.
0: I like the idea of a wiggle worm. (laughs) Uh, Tell people who might be interested in fencing or whatnot, tell people how they might find you out there in the world.
1: The foundation that I'm in the process of starting that offers programs of of support and and continued sports education is called Amy Fortune Foundation. And the email to that is amyfortunefoundation at gmail.com. In honor and of your late wife. Uh, exactly, and uh, she was a um, professional musician. She was a phenomenal athlete and an equestrian. And it's kind of the idea of providing opportunities for parts of the population that might not have access to certain activities that have, are very beneficial, the, uh, the community aspect of it as well, too.
0: Yeah, that's great. And fortune is traditional spelling.
1: It's traditional spelling, yeah.
0: And I'll put links on. Hey yeah, yeah, I'll podcast. give you
1: the uh, the, the link yeah. uh, for that.
0: Jeff, thank you.
1: Susan, thank you. It was great. How do you feel? I, I feel good. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I feel good. I'm ready to. I'm ready to go. Ready to take on the rest of the day. Good. Am thank I sweating? You. How much am I sweating? I feel it. I'm glistening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you did wonderfully. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you for listening, everybody. Bye. rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.